0: You're listening to KZOM, Oleander on Public Radio. Reader's Corner, Part 2 Ouch. Dear Editor, Personally, I would rather read a good short story than the ten pages of instructions by readers published in the March issue. Two pages are plenty, especially when half the criticisms concern paper, size, edges of paper, etc. AS is okay. "'How about that other short? Don Ward, 6 Ketchell Street, Auburn, New York. "'Likes Action. Dear Editor, "'I have just finished the February issue of Astounding Stories. "'All of the stories were so good I couldn't tell you which one is the best. "'The phalanxes of Atlans and the tentacles from below were very good. "'I liked the black lamp, too. "'It is up to the standard of the rest of the Dr. Bird stories.' The Pirate Planet ended very beautifully. However, I did not like that about Sykes getting killed. Werewolves of War was good. It ended differently from most of the other stories. Most of them end with the hero escaping, but in this the hero was killed. It had a very good plot. I got my first copy of Astounding Stories last July, and I haven't missed a copy since. Why not put out Astounding Stories twice a month? Or make it a weekly? I hate to have to wait a whole month before I get another copy. I believe that the best story I have ever read in this magazine was The Invisible Death by Victor Rousseau. The reason I like astounding stories better than any other science fiction magazine is that most of the other magazines have too much science and not enough action. Dale Griffith, 437 Carson Street, San Antonio, Texas To satisfy myself Dear Editor, It has been long since I read the February issue of your magazine, and I'm waiting anxiously for the March issue. The February issue had some very good stories, and I just must say that the story entitled Werewolves of War is the best story of its type I have ever read. Unlike most of these stories, there is more future truth than fiction. Perhaps you didn't expect to hear from me so soon again, but I am interested in this type of story as I used to write this kind in my English class back in high school. My stories were of this type, but always different from any that the rest of the class wrote. Another thing, I love to be writing, so I take this way to satisfy myself. I do hope you will excuse me. I have one more thing to say, and that is, I only wish your magazine was put out every two weeks instead of every four. Or print more stories and raise the price to twenty-five cents. I'm sure people will pay if they are as interested as I. Ken F. Haley 36 Mechanic Street, Lebanon, New Hampshire. EASIER TO TURN Dear Editor, I have just read the reader's corner of the March issue and noticed that bright remark about that super-rotten story Skylark 3. Anyone who liked that story is certainly not hard to please. It does not compare with the worst story ever published. I also read that other magazine, and I say that it has disgraced itself by Skylark 3. Everything is perfect about your magazine, except that there are not enough stories in each issue. The uneven edges are just fine, for it makes the pages easier to turn. The covers are not too gaudy. The covers should depict a thrilling incident in a story. They do. Phalanxes of Atlans offers a good theory as to the whereabouts of the descendants of the Atlanteans and the lost tribes of Israel. It was keen. I conclude my letter with a warning. Do not change your type. Also, do not change your order of issue. I mean, do not make your magazine into a bi-monthly, as I see some magazines of this type have done. Robert Leonard Russell, 825 Casey Avenue, Mount Vernon, Illinois. You tell him, dear editor. I have always considered the drawings of H. W. Wesso far superior to those of all other science fiction artists, and indeed much better than the work of most pulp magazine illustrators but this cover for the March issue of Astounding Stories was remarkable even for him. It was a veritable masterpiece. So enthralled was I by the first sight of this eye-arresting picture that I stared at it for minutes on end. This snarling titan with his mighty arm outstretched toward the tiny figures just beyond his reach. What a gripping tableau! Free from the superfluous, uninteresting machinery and apparatus that clutter up most illustrations in other science fiction magazines, your March cover remained fantastic, but human, a picture that expressed the very essence of super-scientific fiction as presented in astounding stories. Vivid in color, striking in subject, dramatic in treatment, and drawn with consummate skill, that cover must have attracted many new readers to this magazine." And the promise held out by the cover was more than fulfilled by the contents of that issue, one of your best to date. The only discordant note in the entire magazine was the yapping and ranting of certain dissatisfied, censored, too, censored to appreciate the finest, most worthy publication in its field today. Booth Cody, Bronx, New York. Nothing is automatic. Dear Editor, First, I wish to congratulate you on the increasing quality of your magazine since its first issue. It surpasses all other science fiction magazines, and I haven't missed a single issue and don't intend to. What prompted me to write this letter was an article, A Robot Chemist, published in your March 1931 issue. In the article it states that a mechanical robot performed several experiments without human supervision. But I am sorry to say I disagree. Nothing is automatic. Foolishly, after perfecting anything that performs its work afterwards by itself, MAN CALLS IT AN AUTOMATON, BUT IT IS NOT. DID HE NOT HAVE TO WORK AND SLAVE, HOUR AFTER HOUR, DAY AFTER DAY, AND MONTH AFTER MONTH TO PERFECT IT? HE DID. EVER SINCE MAN BECAME CIVILIZED, HE HAS DECEIVED HIMSELF BY CALLING, FOR INSTANCE, MACHINERY IN A FACTORY, AUTOMATONS. THE QUEST FOR AUTOMATIC MACHINERY IS AS HOPELESS AS THE QUEST FOR perpetual MOTION. WHAT IS MY IDEA OF AN AUTOMATON? WELL, TAKE A ROBOT, FOR INSTANCE. Man calls it an automaton, in spite of the fact that he had to slave to put it together before it did its work. My idea is this. The iron ore would come out itself, smelt itself, form itself in the various shapes and parts needed to construct a robot, then take its correct place and rivet itself. Then the radio brain, electrical eyes, and magnet hands take their place, and when it has constructed itself it will conduct the experiments, if a chemical robot— without human supervision. Thus the latter clause would be true. That's my conception of an automatic robot. Otherwise, it's just some metal doing the bidding of a master's brain. Another thing. The novelette Beyond the Vanishing Point by Ray Cummings is preposterous. The flesh might shrink or grow, but the bone would not. If one shrunk as did George Randolph, one's bones would burst through the flesh. But in spite of all that, I like the stories that way. "'Science in the years to come might discover how to shrink or grow both flesh and bones. "'I guess I'm taking too much of your time, so adios. J. Z. Chicago, Illinois. "'Hot Times in the Firehouse. "'Dear Editor, the first Thursday in each month I make a beeline for the newsstand and astounding stories. "'It may interest you to know that I have every issue on file that you have put out. "'There have been some mighty good yarns in those issues.' BUT THE ONE JUST AT HAND CONTAINS THE BEST STORY YOU HAVE EVER PUBLISHED. TERRORS UNSEEN BY HARL VINCENT. THERE'S AN AUTHOR FOR YOU. BUT EVIDENTLY I DON'T HAVE TO TELL YOU SO, AS YOU HAVE GIVEN US QUITE A NUMBER OF HIS splendid STORIES. Vagabonds of Space was a wow. LIKE SOME OF THE OTHERS WHO HAVE WRITTEN IN, I WOULD LIKE TO SEE A SEQUEL TO THIS. HARL VINCENT IS MY FAVORITE OF ALL YOUR AUTHORS. A CLOSE SECOND IS CHARLES W. Diffin. HE IS GOOD TOO as your authors appeal to me, in order, I mean, I would line them up in this way. Harl Vincent, Charles W. Diffin, R. F. Starzl, Ray Cummings, Captain S. P. Meek, Jack Williamson, and Murray Leinster. I agree with Jim Nicholson of San Francisco that you should give us some stories by Francis Flagg. Here is an author you never have published, and, to my way of looking at things, he has more fresh material than most of the authors put together." "'Many of the things that have been copied widely and used extensively—I don't mean that whole stories have been stolen or anything like that—were originated by this fine writer. "'By all means, get Francis Flagg. "'We have just bought a story, a good one, from him. "'Editor. "'He would stand about third in my list if you had used his work before. "'I made it up from those whose work has been used.' Two or three things, I notice, that I would have you correct. All your stories seem to be of standardized length, either around 10,000 words or 25,000 words. Eliminate all restrictions as to word length, but make your writers boil down their work. Most stories are too long, and could be told better if cut down quite a bit. The paper and the page size of the magazine are okay, but why not smooth edges? And it is hard to keep the covers on. I wouldn't object to more pages or an extra nickel in price. Or if not that, how about publishing our magazine twice a month? After fighting a fire, there's nothing like astounding stories with which to unlax. You're doing a fine job, and I only make these suggestions because I want a perfect magazine instead of one that bats 97% all the time. Hope you'll have room for all this. And, oh yes, keep on with your program of no reprints. "'Your new yarns are better than the old ones. "'Let's have the new ones "'and encourage our fine string of authors "'to do even better work.'" Gail Whitman, Fireman, Company Number 11, Maine at 22nd, Columbus, Ohio. Correspondence Wanted Dear Editor, Another critic is going to take his pen in hand and give you a bouquet. I have just finished reading the March issue of A.S. and think it was fine. Of all the stories you have published, I liked The Grey Plague the best. I don't care much for reprints, because I like news stories the best. I would like to correspond with some of the readers of A.S. I will answer any or all letters I receive. L.B. Knutson, 629 3rd Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota. A Heroine a la mode. Dear Editor, I'm with J. H. Nicholson, who advises those who are indifferent to the scientifically possible in order to give the author a broader field in which to lay his plot. As he says, they should feel right at home with their noses stuck into a volume of Anderson's fairy tales. However, this letter is more to express the science lover's viewpoint than to sling mud at the author's. For us, the plot loses much of its kick if the science is not reasonable. Suppose for once that one of these readers, who waves scientific possibility aside as secondary, should pick up a plot-distorted story in which the heroine should be described something as follows. Hers was a tall, superbly built figure combining the strength of a horse with the gentle curves of a hippo. When she spoke, her sweetly modulated voice was as pleasant to the ear as the bray of a Spanish jackass. HER HAIR HUNG TO HER WAIST, AND WAS THE CONVENIENT NESTING PLACE FOR SEVERAL ENGLISH SPARROWS. SHE WAS SLIGHTLY COCK-EYED FROM BIRTH, AND HAD HAD HER NOSE SQUASHED IN A SALOON BRAWL. SHE CARRIED HERSELF WITH THE GRACEFUL DIGNITY OF AN AFRICAN orangutan, AND WAS ALWAYS MUCH SOUGHT AFTER, HAVING A QUAINT HABIT OF SLAPPING EVERY NEW MALE SHE MET, A RESOUNDING WHACK ON THE BACK, THAT LOOSENED THEIR BRIDGEWORK. Being a veteran tobacco-chewer and having high blood pressure, she could spit one hundred feet against a fifty-mile wind. When she ate in company, she had an amusing way of gargling her soup in G-flat. Her— It's unnecessary to go further. Such a character would be every bit as reasonably possible as some of the science these science-conniving readers are willing to sanction. Here are some of the seemingly impossible feats of a recent story. 1. A diver in an ordinary diving dress is able to stand the pressure at three miles down. 2. Granting the above as possible, a diver shoots up three miles without stopping and still does not become a victim of the bends. 3. Granting the above two possible, a diver, after shooting from such a great depth and pressure to a depth of comparatively low pressure, would not be able to lower the pressure inside his dress, since it would be held so rigid— that he would not be able to bend his arms. 4. A man or animal suddenly released from the enormous pressure of about 300 tons to the square inch to atmospheric pressure, it seems would most certainly burst before the internal pressure could equalize itself. Please notice that I said seemingly wrong. I'm for A.S., just 100%, and would prefer to have it as right as possible. I don't like crank letter writing— and would never have written this now if it hadn't been for several of the letters in the March issue that gave me a touch of Hades under the collar. So long. Maybe I'll write again sometime when I get some more ham science ideas. William S. Lotch, 1 Morrison Avenue, Troy, New York You make them adequate. Dear Editor, Thanks. Of course I accept your invitation to the Reader's Corner. I have been a constant reader of your magazine— since its appearance on the science-fiction horizon, and I have yet to meet a story that I failed to read in its entirety or that I didn't like. To merely write a letter and say that this story was good, the other story was fair, and, oh my, how poor the third story was, is futile. But as it is the usual custom to do so, here goes. Excellent stories. All of the first five volumes. Good stories. Who's interested? Poor stories. Where are they? Good authors takes up too much room and time. Poor authors got tired looking for them. All I want to say is, Astounding Stories is the best or one of the best magazines on the market. Gee, but aren't words futile when you describe something great and wonderful? Herbert Goodcut, 707 Jackson Avenue, New York, New York. Ain't It Too Awful? Dear Editor, I knew it. It was bound to come. At last my efforts have been rewarded. Fame has sought me out, even in Brooklyn. It was suggested in the March issue of Astounding Stories that I, Louis Wensler, as one of the active contributors to the Reader's Corner, regale your readers with a description of myself, my interest in science fiction, and how I got that way. A picture was also requested, but this had better be omitted. As for my personal history, bend an ear. At the tender age of four, while making mud-pies on the doorstep of my home, I was beamed by a brick hurled by an uncouth ruffian across the street. The results were not fatal. Who said, unfortunately? But from that moment I developed a taste for science fiction. Had it not been for that incident, I might have grown up a normal lad. But the caress of that brick on my cranium did things to me, and I have been a science fiction addict ever since." Of course, I do not contend that all science-fiction fans were hit by bricks, though a lot of them should be. I do believe, however, that a slight concussion of the brain helps one appreciate science-fiction the more. Anyway, once imbued with the urge, I took to science-fiction like a Hindu to hashish. Such stories were rare in those days, but I started to collect all I could find. Then came the war. I was too young to fight, but I did my bit making canteens out of old sieves. That was how my mind worked, you see. Well, the war ended. I forgot who won. And I went back to my beloved science fiction. Years have passed since then, and I have a fine collection of stories now. Should any of you care to see them, come around to the local booby-hatch sometime. You'll find me in padded cell number 17. Lewis Wentzler, 1935 Woodbine Street, Brooklyn, New York. Hurrah! Dear Editor, Except for a brief letter of criticism in the August 1930 number of astounding stories, I have been a silent but loyal follower of the magazine since its first issue. My silence was that of profound satisfaction. Almost all the stories suited me to perfection, and the few I did not like were hardly worth commenting on. Since the magazine has grown better with every issue, I would probably have kept my peace. But there is one disturbing factor which impels me to write again. I refer to the irresponsible outbursts of certain censored who squeeze into the reader's corner and sputter out senseless denunciation of the magazine, its appearance, its policies, and so on. I do not object to logical, well-founded criticism, but I most decidedly do object to the censored remarks and invidious comparisons indulged in by various censored readers. It's about time someone told them where to head in and by your leave, I'll do it. The most recent offender is J. Vernon Shea, Jr., a Pittsburgh lad of eighteen who in the March issue ventures to criticize the grammar of Ray Cummings, call the editor harsh names, and demand that the magazine conform to his own dizzy notions. He concedes that Astounding Stories prints consistently interesting tales, but charges that the editor is indifferent to the advancement of science fiction. Mr. Shea, Can't you see that the publication of first-class stories, as in this magazine, is the best possible way to popularize science fiction? Or do you simply prefer inferior stuff? Then there's D.R. Guthrie from way back in Idaho, who liked a yarn in another magazine so much he had to tell us all about it, as if we didn't have the best science fiction ever written, right here in Astounding Stories. Guthrie's another who seems to prefer brass to gold. Going back an issue or two, we note a letter from Edwin Magnuson, a deluded denizen of Duluth, who says he's plumb disgusted because Astounding Stories receives far more bouquets than brickbats. when, according to him, the mag deserves to be panned plenty. Get in step, Edwin. You're falling way behind. And I mustn't forget M. Clifford Johnston of the Newark Johnstons, who calls Astounding Stories trash, and its readers... Morons. "'Well, there are various degrees of mental incompetence, "'and the moron is far above the idiot, Mr. Johnston. "'Now that I've taken a few hasty pokes at those who most deserve them, "'I'll give my own comments on some of your latest stories, "'and anyone who feels like telling me where I get off is welcome to do so. First, let me take my hat off to Jack Williamson. "'I never thought much of his stuff in other mags, "'but his, the meteor girl, was a mighty fine piece of work.' Evidently, you've got to be good to crash astounding stories. Interesting as it was, though, Williamson's yarn contained a noticeable error. In the story, the narrator and his friend witness an event occurring twelve hours in the future at a distant place. They then travel to that place, reaching it at a time exactly corresponding to the time of the event witnessed. Therefore, they should have seen themselves in the future scene, an obvious fact which the author either failed to consider, are conveniently ignored. But by the story, they did not arrive at the rock until just after the events they witnessed by means of the fourth dimension. Thus, everything is okay. Take another look. Editor. Despite this flaw, the story embodied several original ideas, had plenty of action, and was well told. We can stand more of Williamson. Phalanxes of Atlans by F. V. W. Mason was a corker. When writers of Mason's standing turn to science fiction, we fans have much to be thankful for. Is there any chance of our getting a story by Fred MacIsaac, Theodore Roscoe, or Earl Stanley Gardner? All of them are first-class writers, and they can handle science fiction better than many who have specialized in that field. The only other suggestion I can offer for improving the magazine is to have additional illustrations within the stories, such as wide-world adventures used to have. Satisfied as I am with astounding stories, it will probably be a long time before I write again, unless I feel called upon to administer a few more verbal spankings to certain obstreperous individuals. Sears Langell, 1214 Boston Road, New York, New York. end of reader's corner and end of astounding stories 16 may 1931